0: week 42 of 60 weeks 60 books. This week's book was published in 2002. I think I bought my copy in 2003 as it is a paperback but it languished unread in my to be read pile until at least 2005 and possibly 2006. The TBR pile to be read it is a sign of true bookaholism. Both Peter and I have our separate piles. Mine is currently around 30 books, some of which have been there for years. But I do definitely, for sure, intend to read them all. A variety of things lurk there. Books recommended in reviews or by friends. Writers I have heard talking in podcasts or on the radio. New books by writers I've enjoyed in the past. The backlists of newly discovered writers. Completely debut authors. Books I've winkled out as part of research for my own writing or reflection. My current TBR pile has literary, historical and children's fiction, some thrillers, some fantasy, a couple of books on psychology, some biographies, history and philosophy. We are coming up to December when I have a few weeks off and I'm planning some serious reading time and inroads into that TBR pile just in time for me to go and visit family in London and buy some more. Of course, I do keep getting sidetracked with full rereads of some of my 60-60 books and that includes today's offering, Fingersmith. Fingersmith was an auto buy for me. I had read Tipping the Velvet, Sarah Waters' debut novel, which came out in 1998. I did not watch the TV series, which came out in 2002, also the year Fingersmith was published. However, 2003 was a busy year, involving running a production of Cabaret, Childbirth, examining hundreds of GCSE literature exams and managing a return to a job which had expanded in three years from producing one school play and one set of performances for exam groups to producing a junior and a senior school play and around eight exam group performances. So there wasn't much time for reading going on. 2003 was followed up by another busy year involving changing jobs and countries and a lot of bureaucracy. It was not until 2005 that I began reading voraciously again. And Fingersmith, was one of those books that I raced through and then immediately had to go back to the beginning because it was so complicated. Waters is an English degree holder. She has a doctorate in literature. Her specialist period is late Victorian with a focus on lesbian and gay fiction and some side alleys investigating Victorian pornography. She is steeped in the conventions and convolutions of the novels of the Brontes, Wilkie Collins, Dickens and modern writers with a taste for 19th century literature. Angela Carter, A.S. Byatt, John Fowles. This literary milieu is absolutely my cup of tea. The complicated plots, the memorable characters, the rich descriptions of urban dens of iniquity and sweeping moorlands and seascapes. Big, fat, immersive books that remove us totally from our humdrum existence and dull daily routines. Fingersmith bowled me over. It has a three-part structure, each section around 200 pages, each part more compelling than the last. The first and third sections are narrated by Sue Trinder, the central section by Maud Lilly. Lovers, enemies, mistress and servant, brought together by forces that they don't initially understand. Beware some spoilers ahead, but don't worry. However spoiled you are for this novel, Waters' gift is to surprise you, however well you know the book, as I discovered on rereading it. The primary settings of the novel are the borough, a now gentrified, hipster area of London, but in the 1860s, a rough, dangerous part of the great city, reminiscent of Dickens' depiction in Bleak House of Tom All-Alone's, a terrifying slum where the desperate, the criminal and the cruel reside. Here, Mrs. Suxby and Mr. Ibs occupy a house. Mrs. Suxby is a baby farmer, feeding gin to infants, and Mr. Ibs is a fence, a receiver of stolen goods. Sue is raised by Mrs. Suxby to be streetwise, canny, and operator, and when she is seventeen, she is trained up to be a lady's maid and taken by Richard Rivers to Briar, a country house seven or eight miles away from Marlow, to be lady's maid to Maud Lily the delicate niece of Christopher Lilly, who is apparently a scholar whose actual work is cataloguing works of pornography. Sue and Maud are both deeply damaged young women, raised with little affection in their lives, in worlds where love and trust and warmth are rare commodities where beatings and abuse are common. Both have been primed by Richard Rivers, known also as Gentleman, although he is anything but, to mislead and dupe each other. Waters captures their voices, their characters, their personalities. We know in part one that Sue has agreed to help gentlemen seduce Maud, elope with her and seize her fortune. But Briar is a mysterious place, and Maud is Sue's only real friend there. The house's name, of course, hints at fairy tale, at the story of Briar Rose, or Sleeping Beauty. In the most innocent versions of the story woken from her enchanted sleep with a kiss, in the darkest versions of the tale, raped in her sleep by a man of royal blood and left pregnant by him until one of the twin babies to which she gives birth sucks the enchanted splinter of flax from her finger. Waters conveys throughout the story a sense of dark magic, corruption and persistent threat to both girls. It is unclear who is the enchanted sleeper. In part one, Sue's first narrative section, we are led to believe it is Maud who will be Sue's cat's paw. And Sue describes Maud like milk, made for spoiling, a gentle, kind, delicate creature. Then, as the time comes closer and closer for the elopement to unfold, Maud seems afraid, unaware of the physical implications of marriage. Sue kisses her. They make love. Sue wakes, guilt-ridden riddled with love and confusion but Maud is by no means the innocent that she and gentlemen have created to fool sue raised initially in an asylum for insane women then brought to her uncle's house at the age of 11 she has been trained up to help him produce his oeuvre a definitive catalogue of pornographic works from antiquity onwards Steeped in 19th century novels in her depiction of Christopher Lilly, Waters alludes to the character of Dr Cazorban in Middlemarch, the stifling failure of a husband who seeks to manipulate his young wife Dorothea from beyond the grave and whose raison d'etre was his aim of producing a key to all mythologies, a task that is beyond him, first, because his own knowledge and understanding are so limited, and second, because he dies, leaving the work unfinished. Maud has been raised first in this asylum for lunatic women where she has helped the women working there by meeting inmates and then when she is taken up by Christopher, Lily brought up in his house to be a cog in his machine, a mechanical being, to be chastised, beaten with his silk-covered beads that harm but leave no visible trace. Maud dislikes gentlemen but seems happy to accede to his plan of elopement Purely to escape Briar. Waters, layers, irony on irony, surprise on surprise. The first shock comes when Gentleman and Maud, between them, following the elopement, deposit Sue in the asylum, claiming that she is mad because she keeps asserting that she is the maid and not Mrs. Rivers, the lady. Maud and gentlemen, then leave for London, where he has promised to install her in a little house in Chelsea so that she can continue, or at least begin to collect about her, her own life. Instead, she finds herself a prisoner in Mrs Suxby's house in Borough. Wrapped with remorse and the realisation that both Sue and she were dupes for Gentleman and Mrs Suxby. she tries to escape. There are many more secrets and astonishing twists, but I am not going to go any further." The consequences of Suxby and Gentleman's manipulation of the girls are complicated and unexpected. Alongside this are Sue and Maud's feelings for one another. Their relationship is at once an exquisite love story and a tale of deep betrayal and the ultimate question is whether they can reconcile and overcome the deep hurt they have inflicted on each other. Fingersmith is unashamed pastiche. Waters takes the elements of what she knows so deeply and creates her own exquisite puzzle. But the book succeeds because Sue and Maud are such rich, vivid characters. Their narrative voices are individual and powerful, particularly Sue's. One year, I decided to teach the book to a class of six formers who had already been exposed to both Dickens and Wilkie Collins, as well as to Tennyson and Christina Rossetti. I think it was for some the first time that they were able genuinely to lose themselves in a book. The prose, whilst rich and purposeful, is more accessible than the 19th century masters and the students clearly enjoyed spotting the tropes and the ways that Waters uses them to subvert expectations. And all were moved by Sue and Maud's relationship, especially on second and in some cases even third readings as it was an exam text. It is an ideal book, especially for bookish young women. Maud and Sue are in their late teens, at that stage when you begin to believe that you understand the world around you, that you are equipped to enter the adult world, that in some cases you know more and better than the adults around you. Nearly two decades on, in some respects, the book seems innocent. There is none of the freight associated with current LGBTQ issues. I know there were girls in my class who were delighted to see a representation of romance – between two women but i was also surprised by the, irac- the reaction of some of the more sensitive boys who saw love as much more than an expression of sexual need or urge i can't remember who wrote in an essay that maude and sue loved each other for their own sake that their love was initially an expression of the deceits that they were trying to perpetrate on each other but that it became an expression of their acceptance of each other's flaws and that was why the ending was positive The biggest area of discussion and disagreement in class was in the depiction of Richard Gentleman Rivers, the undisputed villain of the novel. For some readers, certainly among my students, they felt he was too much, too obvious, too blatantly a nasty piece of work. Sue knows him for counterfeit from the start. Everything about him is false and shoddy. She gives us his background, cut off from his family for gambling too heavily, resorting to recycling his interpretation of a single French novel into multiple translations, and as a halfway competent draughtsman drawn into producing fake bills. This could be a weakness. How is it that as perceptive and streetwise a girl as Sue could be taken in by this obvious lowlife? Waters deploys two elements to persuade the reader first of all is the dramatic irony of the reader seeing more than sue even as she unfolds her story for all her street smarts there's something naive about sue and this is consolidated by the relationship between sue and mrs Suxby. mrs Suxby is the other great creation of this novel her name alone is a touch of genius with its layered sense of giving suck to babies and that hint of ruthlessness from the phrase itself, recalling Lady, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth's determination to dash the brains out of her own child before going back on her own word, the touch of greed and the determination to make suckers of the rest of the world. Sue believes that Mrs Suxby loves her as a mother would, has raised her with special care and marked her out for special attention, almost affection. That is Sue's downfall. The particular gift of Fingersmith is the challenge it throws down in the face of Victorian perceptions of femininity. The dichotomy of fallen woman or angel of the hearth, woman as naive innocent or battle axe matriarch, the stereotypes that Dickens in particular is prey to, with characters like Dora Copperfield, Little Dorrit or Little Nell, Peggotty, Mrs. Gargery, and Mrs. Bagnet from Bleak House. Maud, Sue, and Mrs. Suxby are complex. Conflicted, contradictory individuals, people. They leap from the page and for some of my students were women as they had never before seen them portrayed in books. Women with agency, with determination, with fury and passion freely depicted. No wonder Fingersmith is such a brilliant novel and so worth rereading. Next week, join me for a look at an equally powerful original depiction of a female character who learns strength. Lily Lillian Leib, accidental heroine of Amy Bloom's terrific adventure novel.